It's cold enough out there. Let's pray. Lord our God, the echo of Augustine's plea sounds through the centuries and catches us, catches us in our own need. Our hearts are restless until they find their rest in Thee. Thou, Lord, hast prepared an everlasting rest, that Sabbath that remains to the spirits of the blessed. And so we come as weary pilgrims, praying to be refreshed by that promise, the assurance of an eternal rest at your footstool and the great general assembly of the saints of the Most High. As you encouraged Augustine of old, who found his rest in thee, so encourage us tonight. By your eternal rest, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, last week we were looking at this question of conditionality, the if-then paradigm, particularly in Hebrews chapter 3. And that may have seemed a little bit obtuse to some of you. And therefore, I'm going to just briefly recap it. And hopefully in this uh, condensation, uh, it will once again uh, echo and re-echo with some uh, conviction and also understanding. The if resulting in the then relationship, that is, if you believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, then you shall be saved as an illustration, is accomplished since, that is, if we say, if you believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, then you shall be saved since, or on account of, something has been done in you. The grace union with God in Christ by the Holy Spirit, which is at work in the believer. So in this <clears throat> A diagram of the relationship, notice that the if results in the then, that is, the condition is met by the fulfillment of the condition on account of union with Christ or the fact that the Holy Spirit has begun a good work in us and he will continue it until that great day. Now, if on the other hand, the if does not result in the then, It is since or on account of no grace union with God in Christ by the Spirit at work in the unbeliever. For no sinner is able to perform the if condition and result in the then consequence. So since that doesn't occur in the unbeliever, then uh, that uh, tandem uh, is not uh, possible because there's no union, no grace union. That is, union by grace. 
with God in Christ. And that's what we mean by total inability. The sinner is totally unable to meet the if-then conditional requirement. All right, now, in the first line, we've described a believer. In the second line, we've described an unbeliever, a person who is outside of grace. In the third line, then, we want to talk about Christ himself. Obviously, we look to Christ for all of our sufficiency. So in this if-then relationship, it is possible that this uh, consequence results since Christ performs all the conditional ifs with the consequent thens, which are accomplished in and through him. In other words, Christ met every if-then relationship. Every conditional requirement was met and performed and accomplished by Christ, which means that having done it, he has done it, then those that are united to him, those that are in relationship with him, in union with Christ, have accomplished it in him, not in themselves, but they have accomplished it through Christ who is at work in them, which is the explanation of the final paragraph there, those in Christ find that the Lord Jesus himself has done all the ifs in their place, the consequence of which is that they then participate in the fullness of blessings in which he fully participates. In other words, if we're saying that the conditional relationship is, if you believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, then you shall be saved. How can I believe in the Lord Jesus Christ when I'm unable to be saved and I'm able to believe in Christ? That ability is given to you, and we call that unconditional grace. Because you don't meet the condition in yourself, the Holy Spirit working through the work of Christ and his sufficiency enables you to meet the condition. It is Christ working in you that accomplishes the condition. And so he meets the condition pro nobis, that is, for us. He does this on our behalf. So we've taken the conditionality paradigm there, and we've noted how it relates to a believer, how it relates to an unbeliever, how it relates to Christ himself, and we've pointed out the fact that the grace that we receive is unconditional grace. We cannot meet the condition of any requirement that God expects of us as sinners, and therefore the condition that he requires must be performed by Christ through grace, through the Spirit at work in us, and consequently when indeed we believe on the Lord Jesus Christ so that we are saved, it is because Christ has met the condition of the sufficiency uh, to perform that work in us by his gracious Spirit changing our hearts, bringing us to faith, drawing us away from sin unto grace. <clears throat> now, this, uh, this uh, sequence is simply a way of talking about how conditional requirements are met unconditionally by grace in those who find them working themselves out in their own lives and hearts. This is sovereign grace at work, but it is at work here in a conditional uh, a conditional pattern or conditional relationship. Is it more clear and less obtuse? Any questions you may have? Scott. Um, you know, Graham 
realize this is behind every New Testament text in a sense. Uh, can, can you summarize your argument, though, as inductively from this text, how we derive this conclusion specifically from the text? From uh, uh, chapter 3? Yeah, chapter 3. Yes, well, the, the if-then sequence is in 6 and 14, and then you have the if with the implied-then sequence in 7 and in 15 as well as, yes, yeah, 7 and 15. In other words, I'm looking at the if relationship in this chapter. And the if implies the then, uh, for instance, in verse 6, if we hold fast our confidence and the the boast of our firm hope, then we will reach the end, which is also another uh, implication of verse 14, that if we hold fast the beginning of our insurance, then we will reach the end. Okay? So behind the if, if you hear his voice, then you will enter into my rest, verse 7. Verse 15, if you hear his voice, do not harden your heart, then you will enter into his rest, verse 15. The then is implied because the rest was open, the rest of Psalm 95, R-E-S-T, is open to, uh, to the wilderness generation. So in this, I'm taking the occasion of seeing this paradigm here and then thinking about this whole conditionality matter throughout Scripture. Wherever we see an if-then sequence, if you believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, you shall be saved. If-then. Okay? Do this and you shall live. If you do this, then you shall live. Leviticus 18.5. Okay? The same pattern is behind all of this conditionality in Scripture. No. Yes. Uh, yes. Th- thank you for saying it in summary fashion. <laughs> that that is what I'm doing. <clears throat> I am not specifically targeting the Armenian, though they would fall within my crosshairs. But nonetheless, I'm trying to say this is a much broader paradigm that uh, encompasses everything from Genesis to Revelation when we see this conditionality formula. So that's a way of reading your Bible. You read in the Bible, you don't ever think that when the Bible tells you if you do such and such that you have some kind of sufficiency in and of yourself to meet that condition, that your sufficiency is in Christ and the power of the Spirit at work in you, which means you're never going to be an Arminian if that's the way you think. (laughs) All right, now, we did not have time to deal with the uh, three questions at the end of chapter three last week, so let's... Uh, turn back to chapter 3, verses 16 through 19, and begin uh, to look at the text this evening by answering these questions. For what kind of questions are they? As you look at the form of them, and they all have the same form, <clears throat> what kind of questions are they? Rhetorical. They are rhetorical questions. Very good, Bob. And a rhetorical question is a question which has an obvious answer. All right, so let's begin with the question in verse 16. Who provoked him when they had heard? And the answer is... All those who died in the wilderness. No, he gives you the answer. 
led out of Egypt. Yes, it's the Exodus generation. All right, so notice that he begins by setting this broader context to Psalm 95 by using a rhetorical question, who provoked him? Those who had come out of Egypt, the Exodus generation. Notice the word all in that verse. All right, so we, want, we may want to ask ourselves, who are the all in verse 16? Well, he's going to use an epexegetical paradigm in order to explain the all. Epexegetical means he's going to make it clearer as he goes on who the all are. All right, so let's, let's see this flow fall out here in verses 17, 18, and 19. All right, now his second rhetorical question, with whom was he angry for 40 years? And the answer is... So the answer is now the wilderness generation, okay? So the Exodus generation in verse 16, the wilderness generation in 17, notice they're going to be synonymous in some way, but he's using a different image, okay? So he's, he's enriching the image of what's behind his questions. All right, now, uh, we had the all in verse 16, so who is it? Who who are the all in verse 17? Those who sin. Those who sin. Very good. So now we have an enlargement of the all. That is, we have a uh, explanation of who the all are in 16, namely in verse 17. They are those who sinned in the wilderness. That brings us to the third rhetorical question there in verse 18. To whom did he swear that they should not enter his rest? And the answer is? Those who are disobedient. Let's put it this way. The Sinai pilgrims. The pilgrims in the Sinai desert. Okay, so we have the Exodus generation, the wilderness generation. We have the Sinai pilgrims. And how are they described in relationship to the word all in verse 16 and to the word those who sinned in verse 17? In verse 18, they are... Terry, who are they in verse 18? They were disobedient. All right, now notice, you see, we're getting a picture of who the all are in verse 16. It's all who were, all who sinned, verse 17. It's all who were disobedient, verse 18. And now we come to verse 19, which is not a question and answer uh, structure. So we see that they were not able to enter because of unbelief. So here's the final description of the all. So we can say all, verse 16, who sinned, verse 17. All, verse 16, who sinned, verse 17, and were disobedient, verse 18. All who sinned were disobedient and did not believe. You see how he's uh, filled out what he means by the all. So in that wilderness generation, in that Exodus generation, amongst those Sinai pilgrims, all who were unbelievers, all who disobeyed, all who sinned were excluded from God's rest, all of them. 
were excluded. All right, now, in order to reinforce that, let's take a look at the text of the Old Testament. You're going to keep your finger in Hebrews 4. We'll go back to Numbers chapter 14, which is, in fact, the uh, historical narrative of this incident to which the uh, psalmist in Psalm 95 is referring. Here you have the lengthy account of the excursion of the spies into the promised land, their return and their report. And in verse 35, if somebody has it, Loretta, do you have it? 1435 of Numbers. I, the Lord, have spoken, and I will surely do these things to this whole wicked community which has banded together against me. They will meet their end in this desert. Here they will die. Okay. Now, uh, she, she read this whole wicked community. Does anybody have a different translation in verse 35? This, David? This evil congregation. Okay. The, uh, do you have anything before this evil congregation? A word before that, David? No, just this evil congregation. Does anybody have anything different in that phrase? Yes, there we go. What version was that, Stephen? That was the New American Standard, which translates the text. Because the word call, which is a Hebrew word for all, is in the text. All this evil congregation. Notice the word all there in the description of the account itself, which is duplicated in Hebrews 3.16. All right, now let's turn over to chapter 32 of Numbers where we once again have a rehearsal of this incident. And let's take a look at verse 13. Now, Loretta, I'm going to call on you again because I want to hear what your text says, what your uh, version says here. The Lord's anger burned against Israel, and he made them wander in the desert 40 years until the whole generation of those who had done evil in his sight were gone. Very good. It's at least consistent there. Uh, uh, her version is consistent between Numbers 14 and Numbers 35, the whole generation. What does your version say there, Stephen? Until the entire generation. The entire generation. All right, once again, we have the sense of all being the whole or entire generation of those who were in the wilderness and involved in this disobedient unbelief and sinfulness. All right, Nehemiah 9 does reflect on it, but it doesn't specify uh, the numbers. But let's go to 1 Corinthians 10, where Paul talks about this incident. And in fact, he uses the whole Exodus and wilderness paradigm in the first 13 chapters of uh, 1 Corinthians. But I want you to notice, especially verse 5. And uh, Terry, if you have it, would you read it for us? Uh, I don't have it yet. 1 Corinthians 10, verse 5. That's all right. We have a moment. We'll wait for you. Correct. Um, nonetheless, with most of them, God was not well pleased, for they were uh, laid low in the wilderness. All right, notice the expression, most of them, and indeed that is true, with the exception of Joshua and Caleb, 
and Moses and perhaps one or two others uh, that we know about. Uh, the rest of that generation, most of them were destroyed or laid low in the wilderness. And finally, we come to Jude chapter 5, which is the last explicit reflection in the New Testament upon this incident. Bob, do you have Jude 5? Jude 1, 5, yeah. Though you already know all this, I want to remind you that the Lord delivered his people out of Egypt, but later destroyed those who, who did not believe. The basis of the destruction here is what we have seen in Hebrews 3, namely, they did not believe. <clears throat> so they were destroyed on account of unbelief. <clears throat> All who did not believe were destroyed in the wilderness. All who were disobedient against the promise of God were destroyed in the wilderness. All right, any questions about that? You have a kind of uh, profile in uh, uh, Hebrews 3, 16 to 19, of the character of these individuals whose carcasses dropped in the desert uh, Is there anything that you would like to uh, question or raise an observation about that? All right, now, moving on to chapter 4. The dominant motif of chapter 4, verses 1 to 13, is God's rest. And we want to think about this the way the writer lays it out in these uh, uh, in the verses of this chapter, the opening verses of this chapter. So on that blank line that's in the middle of your sheet, underneath the redemptive historical or biblical theological paradigm, you want to make a note that we're talking about God's rest. And I'll tell you in a minute why uh, we've placed that line there. <clears throat> but <clears throat> now in redemptive historical or biblical theological progression or development. We want to think about how the writer of Hebrews is talking about God's rest as it unfolds redemptive historically, as it unfolds biblically theologically, as it is uh, kind of unraveled uh, down through the history of redemption. Now, we've already commented in verse 16 of chapter 3, upon one redemptive historical image that he uses. And where does he go uh, to in that verse? He goes back to what event? Anyone? To the Exodus. All right. So he is looking at God's rest in the light of the Exodus. So moves on to what image? Those who sin? Where? In, in the desert. In the wilderness. All right, so we have the wilderness motif in chapter 3, verse 17. Notice he's moved uh, sequentially, okay? He's moved from Exodus to wilderness, okay? From coming out of Egypt to being in the wilderness or in the desert. Now we turn to chapter 4, verse 8. Now, who's he describing here? 
Joshua. We have Joshua. And what is Joshua in Greek? Do you know, Cain? Jesus. It is Jesus, all right? And so the Greek text here reads Jesus, all right? Because, of course, if you had been uh, uh, speaking to Jesus of Nazareth as one of his uh, Hebrew playmates in the streets of Nazareth, yes, uh, Jesus had playmate friends, too. They played in the streets like all boys do, and all boys and girls do. So uh, if they would have said... Uh, Jesus come out to play, uh, because they were Hebrew boys and girls, they wouldn't have said Jesus. What would they have said? Okay? Joshua. Joshua. Yeah, Yeshua. Yes, okay. All right, so here's a play on words, all right, or a play on the name. Nonetheless, as Kay indicated, we're talking about Joshua. So he has moved from the Exodus to the wilderness sojourn. Now, under Joshua, what event is he moving to? What did Joshua do besides hit the battle of Jericho and the wolves come and tumble them down? He brought them into Canaan. He brought them into Canaan. He, and what are they doing in Canaan? They are conquering the land, correct? So now he has moved to the conquest of Canaan, the settlement of Canaan. No longer sojourners in the wilderness settling into permanent Houses or dwellings in the land. All right, so we move from Exodus to wilderness to conquest and settlement of Canaan. In verse 7, he moves, actually going backwards a little bit, but we're going to go back and pick up something he points out in verse 7. You catch it? Loretta shook her head. What name is in the verse, Loretta? David. And what era would that be? What period of Israel's history do you associate with David? Yes, the kingdom. All right. So notice the very interesting sidelight here. In Psalm 95, we're not told who the author is. There's no title to Psalm 95, and yet the writer of Hebrews tells you who wrote Psalm 95. It says David wrote it. All right, so now David writing Psalm 95 in the time of the monarchy or in the time of the kingdom is also reflecting upon this issue of God's rest. So we move from Exodus to wilderness to Joshua and the conquest to David and the monarchy, or David and the kingdom. And finally, verse 3 of chapter 4. To It's us. That's how he described it. That's exactly right. That's precisely the word that we want. It's us. It's the New Testament era. Okay? So here we've moved through the eras of the history of redemption, haven't we? We've moved from Exodus to the wilderness period, to the settlement or conquest of Canaan period, to the monarchical period or the time of David as king, to us as New Testament pilgrim sojourners. All right? Now, over top of that whole uh, paradigm 
Okay, I put that line, which I said I want you to label God's rest. Yeah, if I could write. God's rest is over the exodus, over the wilderness sojourn, over the conquest, over the Davidic kingdom, and over us. In other words, as we move along this line of history, it is God's rest that is like a canopy over us. Therefore, all of these events, as the writer points out, in other words, he goes through this paradigm in order to connect or relate God's rest to the exodus from Egypt, God's rest to the sojourn in the wilderness, God's rest to the conquest under Joshua, God's rest to the, the Davidic, uh, M, Davidic kingdom. Because when David's writing this psalm, writing Psalm 95, he's talking about they didn't enter God's rest. And they still haven't entered God's rest in David's day, okay? Because Joshua couldn't bring them in, right? Joshua couldn't bring them in. David can't bring them in. But we have entered into it. All right, we're going to talk about how that is possible. But nonetheless, notice that this is the point that overshadows this whole paradigm, this redemptive historical paradigm, this narrative paradigm. He is telling the story of the history of redemption in these two chapters, chapters 3 and 4. And he is telling it in relationship to God's rest. All right, now, my next question there on your outline is, what is the motif? What's the motif of this movement along this line? Yes, very good, Kay. Is that what you were going to say, Terry? Well, two A's for both of you. All right, this is the pilgrim motif. Because notice, it's the people of God as sojourners, as pilgrims. They are moving along the line of redemptive history. And so he's capitalizing on this epistle to the Hebrews, epistle to the pilgrims of the New Testament age, the sojourners of the end of the age. And he's connecting them with a drama of the previous history of redemption as he does it. In other words, he wants you to see the analogy between pilgrimage now and pilgrimage then. Pilgrimage as it unfolds throughout the whole drama of the history of redemption. But then he does something else. In chapter 4, he does something else. He adds something. What does he add? What does he add to his biblical theological paradigm, to his redemptive historical pattern? What does he add, Harry? What do you think? Loretta, help him out. Well, I see the creation in there. Excellent. Exactly right. There's another A. There's three A's in the class tonight. All right. Yes, he adds the creation. He's going all the way back to the beginning. Now, if we went out to the end, remember in chapter 3, verses 6 and 14, he has talked about beginning and end. If we talk about protology and we talk about eschatology, 
beginning and end. He has specified the creation. What is the end? Very good. Can we put heaven over here? Actually, we put heaven up here, but you know, I want, to see, I want you to see it in this kind of linear fashion. Okay? All right, so he's bookending. He's bookending his paradigm. He begins with creation because he wants you to see that even from the beginning, God's rest was related to that creation ordinance. This is very important. Yes. So, taking the next part of the outline, or actually filling in the lines there uh, in underneath uh, what chapter 4 adds, we want to put God's rest in there again, and then just fill out everything that you filled up out in the uh, outline above, only add creation at the beginning. So you move from creation to exodus to wilderness to Joshua and conquest to David and monarchy and to us and the New Testament people of God. So chapter 4, verse 4 adds, and we've already had uh, Loretta comment on it, it includes creation and Bob, but what does it also include? You just said it. Well, it includes the Sabbath day, the seventh day rest. It includes the Sabbath rest. It includes the seventh day, which is specific there in verse 4 and in verse 9. He will make it even clearer. All right, so now he has identified something else in this redemptive historical paradigm. He has identified the element of the Sabbath, which he associates with the creation because the Sabbath originates at the creation. It originates in the garden when God ceased his creative work and rested from his labors. Now, it didn't mean that God ceased to work at all. He simply changed his work of creation to his work of providence. He was no longer creating things out of nothing. He was now sustaining or providing for his creation. So the Sabbath rest at the creation is a testimony to the fact that God himself participates in this uh, Sabbath rest or this eternal rest. From the beginning, it is there. Which means that even in the Garden of Eden, the Sabbath was there. Even before man sinned, the Sabbath was there. Adam had the privilege of the Lord's Sabbath rest in the garden before sin ever entered the created universe. The Sabbath then was a privilege that Adam enjoyed even when he had no sin. Hmm. Hmm. Does that link up? Does that link up? Adam enjoys the privilege of the Sabbath in the beginning when he has no sin. Adam enjoys the privilege of the Sabbath in heaven where there is no sin. Ah, okay. 
All right, so once again, we're, we're seeing why he introduces creation here into his paradigm. He is enlarging or enriching this uh, development of the creation Sabbath and its relationship to God's rest and the poignancy of the eschatological Sabbath. He is tying this all together with a word that he uses in verse 9, which is translated in most of your versions, a Sabbath rest, as if the Greek word, which is simply one single term, is translated in two words. That is slightly misleading. But it is a rare Greek word. And so I am going to suggest a more helpful translation of this word, namely that this there is a sabbatizing There is a sabbatizing for the people of God. And then on the bottom of page one of your outline, a sabbatizing pattern is present from, Loretta, this is your word, this is your answer, from creation. The sabbatizing pattern is present from the creation. Man is to sabbatize from the creation. God himself sabotages from the creation. And on page two, I have uh, my uh, indication of the, I, I give you the Greek word, which as I say is exceedingly rare, but nonetheless I think it is best understood as sabotizing, which gives you the sense of the activity of the Sabbath. All right, so the sabotizing pattern is present from creation and throughout the whole history of redemption. It is not just prominent here for Adam in the garden, and it is just not prominent here for the saints' everlasting rest in heaven. It is prominent throughout the whole history of redemption. The Sabbath pattern comes through comes to expression throughout the whole history of redemption. Yes, David. The word for rest in verse 9 in the Greek, does it differ from the word for rest in the Greek in verse 8 and in verse 10? There is no word for rest in verse 9 because the translation that says Sabbath rest, as your versions have translated, is sabbatismos. So they've taken one word and translated it Sabbath rest. And I'm taking exception to that because I'm saying that that sabbatismo should actually be sabbatizing as a pattern. The word for rest is kautoposis, and it is different. Uh, in the previous sections of this uh, chapter, then the sab- sabbatismos is a hopox. Only occurs once here in the epistle. Okay, so the rest that Joshua... Uh, did not provide them. That's a different word than what we have in verse 9. Correct. And I'm, I'm drawing the nuance that it is a sabotizing that uh, Joshua does not provide. Now, that sabotizing includes God's everlasting rest, but there's more drama in it than just that, because as I want to uh, demonstrate, uh, the redemptive historical pattern as it unfolds includes a repetitive reflection of that sabotizing. All right, 
So, the sabotaging pattern is present from the creation and throughout the history of redemption. And now we're going to string together a sequence of uh, explanations or uh, what I think will be uh, helpful suggestions of how we view this. The eschatological rest, or the Sabbath of God, is reflected in creation history, in wilderness history, in conquest history, in kingdom history or Davidic history, the monarchy, in the New Testament era history, and in heaven. In other words, this Sabbath pattern is a pattern which also enriches the whole unfolding of the history of redemption. All right, now we're going to change our illustration or our schematic. To a vertical and horizontal paradigm. Now I want to do this in order to emphasize the intersectional or the existential. Now, this vertical and horizontal, the horizontal is the line of history. Okay, we've seen that line in the previous diagram moving from creation to exodus to wilderness, etc., down through the history of redemption to uh, the New Testament era. So this is the line of history as it's unfolding down through time. Okay? The vertical line is the line of eschatology. Now, where these two lines intersect, where they crisscross... The intersectional is the existential. Now, what do I mean by existential? Stephen? Do I mean Kierkegaard? No, I do not. Do I mean Sartre and Camus? No, I do not. All right, so what do I mean by existential? He's, he's pondering that, Kay. Do you want to help him? Well, to me, it looks like where God meets man. Very good. So... So what we're talking about is where I experience it. In other words, where I am drawn into the interface between the eschatological and the historical. Now, obviously, this is God's arena here, the eschatological. And it is penetrating history. And when it penetrates history, it touches me because I'm an historical being. So I'm drawn into it. My existence, my existential experience is drawn into the paradigm. Okay? So here, God touches me in history. Or God touches his children, his people, believers. All right? Okay, now, with that in mind, then let's go back and look at the paradigm again with God's rest as the canopy over uh, all of these uh, 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 subsidiary 
uh, aspects or uh, progressive aspects, the vertical, horizontal, intersectional paradigm is equivalent to the historical, eschatological, existential paradigm. I'm using these two terms synonymously, these two sequences synonymously, and now I'm going to uh, uh, unpack God's rest in the light of them. So, in your first little outline, where you have uh, on your outline eschatological rest and creation, you want to put a little uh, vertical horizontal paradigm, little crisscross. Okay, so we have at the creation in the Garden of Eden an intersection between the eschatological rest and the creature, the created order. And that intersection is the existential Sabbath rest. Adam was drawn in his experience, in his existence, he was drawn in to this Sabbath rest even uh, before sin came into the world. All right, now following that, under eschatological rest and wilderness, your next little section, once again, you would draw your intersecting lines. And here at the intersection is once again the existential Sabbath rest. For in the wilderness, he reveals in the Ten Commandments the law of the Sabbath. So the Sabbath, once again, becomes a, an existential reality because of the intersection of eschatology and history. God's rest enters into the history of the wilderness generation as a reflection of his eschatological rest. Now, the next one is the eschatological in Canaan. And here, we're looking back to that Joshua paradigm in uh, chapter 4, verse 8. So we draw our little crisscross lines again. And as they enter Canaan on the historical uh, horizontal line, uh, that rest which they are seeking is demonstrated in the fact that Joshua doesn't give it to them. He doesn't give it to them in any kind of permanent way. Nonetheless, they have the existential experience of the Sabbath rest in terms of settling in the land. We come to the Davidic kingdom, same thing. you got a little narrower uh, uh, section there to put your little crisscross. Uh, but in the Davidic kingdom, once again, the kingdom as the emblem of God's monarchical rest, that is his royal rest, his kingly rest, is displayed in the dawn of the kingdom of David and Israel. And therefore, in that rest that David brings to Israel from their enemies, that uh, Sabbath rest becomes an existential experience. They experience, in measure, the Sabbath rest of God. Finally, to us in the New Testament era, once again, you put your little crisscross in there if you wish. We, as Hebrews 4.3 has indicated... We are at the intersection by, uh, God, of God's rest, his eschatological rest, 
because it has penetrated into the New Testament era in terms of Jesus as the Lord of the Sabbath, and therefore the existential Sabbath rest is present to us. Synonymously then, heaven as the eschatological rest and the intersection of heaven with the historical, that is, when the eschatological intersects with the historical, we have a demonstration or an invitation to the eternal Sabbath rest of God. That is true even for Adam in his sinless state. Now, you may ask, with Adam in his sinless state, why would there be a Sabbath rest held out to him? Why would there be an everlasting rest held out to him? There was no sin in him. Why then would God reveal the Sabbath to Adam in the garden? Because Adam is perfect in his sinlessness in the garden. And your answer is? I don't know, but God rested himself Hmm? in creation, and he was sinless. sinless. Yes. So is he just giving Adam an example? Is that all it is? Here, I'm going to take my rest, and you take your rest too? Good. Remember that there is this eschatological dimension to God's Sabbath rest, even from the creation. David? Well, Adam was to tend to the garden. Okay. So he needed a rest. I don't know that he needed a rest. But his, uh, his relationship uh, uh, was to a certain extent, or a characteristic of a work-based relationship. Okay. uh, That's fine. And the heavenly rest, um, I don't know that we will consider it work. I don't know. I'm just guessing. Why did you bring up heavenly rest when your comment there? For Adam. I mean, he's in a perfect paradise. Uh, but it's not heaven. It's not, it's not. Ah! The Garden of Eden is not heaven? No, it isn't. So, in Adam's experiencing the Sabbath rest, is he being invited up a little higher? As perfect as the garden is, you see, Adam isn't sitting before the face of God in glory, is he? God has to come down to him and walk with him in the cool of the day. God condescends. That's a wonderful condescension on God's part. That is true. But it is not Adam walking before the face of God in the glories of heaven itself. It's not Adam coming up. To God, it's God coming down to Adam. So God really comes down to Adam in the garden in order that he can bring Adam up to God. That where I am, there you may be also. 
Adam, but I leave you in this garden for a time and I give you work to do. And I tell you to obey my word and don't eat of that tree. And I will test you to see whether you are worthy to come up to my footstool and walk before me. Now, we know that Adam blew it, of course, but notice that the Sabbath here in the garden is a demonstration of the eschatological fruition of Adam, even in his perfect state. There is something more perfect. There is something more blessed for him. And that is to see God face to face. Not to hear him with the hearing of the ear as he walks through the garden in the cool of the day, but to see him in his glory. That's the prospect that God holds out to Adam in the Sabbath rest that he grants him. The wonderful privilege then of Adam not only entering into what God enters in, but being invited into that arena where there is an everlasting rest from work, from even the created order, and to see God in his uncreated majesty, the creature being fit to be in the realm of the uncreation, and that forever. All right, you get the point here then. In other words, the Sabbath is always pointing to God's own eschatological dimension. It's an invitation. It's like a summons that God gives that when he reveals this rest, this Sabbath rest throughout the history of redemption, he is inviting those who hear that invitation, those who participate in that Sabbath rest, even provisionally here on earth, inviting them up into that rest that remains, verse 9. That eternal rest, that eschatological rest, that heavenly rest. So that all through this paradigm of these crisscross relationships, whether it's creation, whether it's the wilderness or the Sinai generation, whether it's the conquest or settlement generation, whether it's the monarchical or kingly generation, whether it's the New Testament generation, whether it's us, you see, that Sabbath rest is over us like a canopy with this wonderfully gracious invitation of God, come into my Sabbath rest. Come into my perfect, eschatological, heavenly, eternal Sabbath rest. I have a Sabbath remaining to you. I have a sabbatizing remaining to you, an everlasting sabbatizing, an eternal sabbatizing. Come into my Sabbath rest. Okay. So, the Sabbatismos remains to the people of God, verse 5. The Sabbatizing remains to the people of God. The invitation to enter into the drama of God's own Sabbatizing from the creation to Sinai to the, through the wilderness to the conquest to the Davidic monarch to the Lord, resurrection of the Lord of the Sabbath to uh, heaven itself is uh, in front of the people of God. 
All right, now we'll take a break at this point and then we'll return to consider the ethical implications of this paradigm. And if you have any questions before we go to the break, I'll be glad to respond to them. Then enjoy your coffee. Now, the next point on the outline is to address the issue of the ethical reflection of the Sabbath, namely the glory of God's eternal or eschatological rest reflected in human history or in human behavior. We're talking about ethics, we're talking about morals, we're talking about patterns of activity, patterns of behavior now, consequently, we want to ask about this Sabbath paradigm, both redemptive historically and existentially, we want to ask about it in terms of our ethics, our moral behavior, how we act in the light of the privilege of the invitation to come into God's Sabbath rest. Now, I want to begin with... Uh, the distinction between spatial and temporal elements or arenas, and we're taking this line of redemptive history that we've used before from Adam or creation to the wilderness to Canaan to the kingdom under David to the New Testament era to heaven itself. Those are all spatial arenas. Okay, Adam lived in space in the Garden of Eden. The wilderness generation was sojourning in space, that is, through the wilderness geography. The land of Canaan was a space. The kingdom of David was a space. The New Testament era is a space. We live in a universal space, that is, a, a international and uh, a, a global space in the New Testament era. And heaven is a place, if not a space, uh, now, by that, I have to uh, watch myself because uh, I want uh, us to be aware that there are already uh, two resurrected bodies, three resurrected bodies in that place. And obviously, those resurrected bodies occupy some kind of parameters. If we don't want to call it actually space, nonetheless, they occupy some parameters in that arena. Um, and those, of course, are the bodies of Enoch, Elijah, and our Lord Jesus himself. So uh, I, I might be uh, uh, quibbling a little bit or quailing a little bit here about saying heaven is a space, but nonetheless it is a place. It's not a place like this place. 
right? It's not a place like this material entity and material creation, but it is a real place. It is a real spiritual place. It is a real spiritual dimension. And resurrected bodies and glorified souls can occupy that place, right? All right, so you get the idea. Uh, there, there's some kind of parameters involved in this spatial uh, aspect. Now, parallel to that is the temporal aspect, and we're fixing our attention here upon God's Sabbath rest. Sabbath rest is a temporal reality. Adam in the garden experiences existentially a temporal rest. He rests in time. He spends a time in rest on the Sabbath in the garden. So does the wilderness generation. They spend time resting on the Sabbath day in that space. It is true of the uh, settlement or the conquest generation, the generation that goes into Canaan. They cease from their labors. They settle. They cease from the labor of conquering the land. They settle into it. They experience, in part, a Sabbath rest, even on the Sabbath day. Same is true for the era of David's kingdom. There is an experience of rest from battling the enemies of David and Israel around about. The New Testament era also grants us Sabbath rest. We have this experience of resting from our weekly labors. And ultimately, heaven is an eternal Sabbath rest. It is a timeless Sabbath rest. Here is where eternity uh, swallows up time, even as heaven swallows up space. All right. Now, my point here is that the Sabbath, as it enters into time and space, creates a drama or a a dynamic which requires time and space to fulfill it. The privilege of the Sabbath requires time and requires a space in which to fulfill that time. Okay? You follow follow where we're going. We're thinking now of the Sabbath in terms of spatial spatial temporal drama. All right, so temporal, historical, horizontal, existential sabbatizing or Sabbath keeping is a reflection of eternal, eschatological, vertical, existential sabbatizing or Sabbath keeping. What is happening here, you see, What is happening here in the horizontal venue is a reflection of what is occurring in that venue perfectly in the everlasting Sabbath. And at every point where the Sabbath impinges upon the history of redemption, there is a revelation or demonstration of this everlasting or eternal eschatological character of the Sabbath. In fact, that is primary. That is primary. You keep the Sabbath because you love heaven. Ah, you never thought of it that way, but that's what it is. You keep the Sabbath because you love heaven. It is the privilege of God inviting you into heaven that is reflected in your Sabbath day keeping, your Sabbatizing. You have been called up to the general assembly of the heavenly Jerusalem, Hebrews chapter 12. 
Your sabbatizing is in relationship to your eternal Sabbath rest call and invitation. The privilege then of the Sabbath day is the privilege of you testifying as well as experiencing existentially in your own experience is you testifying and experiencing a foretaste of your everlasting Sabbath rest. Oh, I never thought of it that way. I always thought of it of things I have to do and things I don't have to do, or things I shouldn't do and things I shouldn't do. Well, they'll take care of themselves if you once understand what you're doing, what God was doing when he invited Adam in the garden in his sinless state into his everlasting Sabbath rest. You understand how those questions of what to do and what not to do will take care of themselves when you understand the eschatological Sabbath perspective. All right, well, let's work that out in a little bit of detail here. As you take the next page of the outline, the now-not-yet paradigm... A Sabbath day, one in seven now, in relationship to a Sabbath day, eternal Sabbath not yet. So here is the temporal, that is the this age Sabbath day, one in seven now, in relationship to the eternal Sabbath, which is not yet. The Sabbath that remains, Hebrews 4.9. The Sabbatizing that remains. Now... Since we're talking about something that is going to be reflected in our now behavior, our ethical behavior now, our moral behavior now, as we anticipate the not yet, as we look forward to the not yet, okay, as we consider that, then we have to ask, well, what is the source of the ethical or moral existential pattern? What is the source? of the moral pattern of the Sabbath. The Ten Commandments, exactly. What is the source of all ethical and existential requirements or patterns or invitations? The Ten Commandments. So, now let's consider the moral imperative, namely the commandment, as a reflection of the eschatological indicative. All right, now what do I mean by that? The moral imperative is the thou shalt or thou shalt not. That's the imperative. That's a command. The moral imperative. Now, it is a moral imperative because it is a claim upon your ethical behavior. It is a claim upon your action. It is a claim upon what you do. How you behave. Okay? So, the moral imperative comes from God. God's command. But, that moral imperative is related to the eschatological indicative. Alright, now, the, the imperative mood is the mood of command or obligation. Do this. Or do not do this. The indicative is the state of standing right with God. 
standing in acceptance with him. Indicative eschatological state would therefore be your heavenly condition, your heavenly destiny, your heavenly uh, invitation. Now, obviously, this indicative eschatological state is somehow connected to God himself. What in God? God's moral nature. Ah. Because heaven is the place where God's moral nature is perfectly displayed. His moral character is perfectly obvious in heaven. He is in the indicative state of perfect morality, perfect sinlessness, perfect ethical action. And that is your destiny. His indicative, ah, now it's more than your indicative. His indicative is the basis of his imperative. His character as the God who is in a state of moral perfection is the ground of his imperative or command that you be holy as he is holy. Well then, If the moral imperative reflects the eschatological indicative, if my moral obligation is to be a reflection of God's own nature, his moral character, then how do I see that fall out in the Ten Commandments? One, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten, down your sheep. All right, then let's think about that. So, Terry, let's begin. What's the first commandment? No other gods. All right, so let's just put other gods there in line one. Let's go down the sheet. What's the second commandment, David? Uh, I'm too exhausted. Oh, okay. Then uh, we'll take uh, Bob. What's the second commandment? Love the Lord your God with all your heart. No. You're you're thinking of the summary. That, That good CRC summary stuff. Which is fine, because it's our Lord's word. But what's the second commandment of the Decalogue? Okay? No idols? Yes, you shall not worship any graven image, so let's say no idols. Okay, what's the third? Loretta? Um, Issues in the name of God? Yes, do not take God's name in vain. Number three. What's number four? Stephen? Uh, Remember the Sabbath day. The Sabbath day. Pete, what's the fifth? Um... Honor your father. Okay, so we'll put uh, authority there in number five. All right, uh, number six. David, you know what number six is? After honor your father, what is number six? Terry? Bob? Okay? I have it here. It says not, not to murder. Thou shalt not kill. All right? Number seven, Loretta? Do not commit adultery. Thou shalt not commit adultery. You can just put adultery in that. Number eight, Stephen? Uh, do not steal. Thou shalt not steal. Number nine, Pete? False witness. Do not lie. Let's try Let's just summarize it in terms of lie. And Terry, let's come back to you. What's number ten? Bob? Okay. Do not covet. Thou shalt not covet. All right, now there's your list. 
Now, you've got them summarized in short phrases, all right, but you get the gist of them. Now, the next thing we want to do is we want to ask whether or not these are moral commandments. Are they ethical reflections of God's character binding upon us? In other words, are we to have any other gods but him? Is that a moral obligation? Is it an imperative binding us? And you say yes. Okay, it seems obvious to you. Okay, well, I'm making the obvious more obvious, I hope, because I want you to see it in relationship to this eschatological paradigm. Well, then why, why is it binding upon us to have no other gods but the Lord? Eschatologically, because in heaven there is no other God. So you see, you're reflecting what is the heavenly reality in your imperative response to the command to have no other God. There is no other God. Yes, that's true. There are they, all their gods are false gods. But in heaven, you will have no other god except Him. So now, here on earth, you're to reflect that in having no other god before your face. Now, now, not yet, not yet, you will have no other god in glory, will you? So now, you're to have no other god before you. The not yet casts its shadow, casts its reflection upon your own moral imperative. <clears throat> The eschatological indicative, the eschatological character of God is reflected in your, your own moral obedience. See, this isn't, this isn't screwing yourself up to good works. This is reflecting in your behavior the glory of the God of heaven before whom you hope to sit forever and ever. Showing yourself a child of God even now by having no other gods as you will have no other gods for all eternity as you sit before his glorious face. Daniel, how can I fall down before that image and worship it? Ah, I'll go to hell first. I'll perish first. Burn me up in the furnace first. There's no other God. And he will save me if he wishes. And he did. Because heaven came down to that furnace, didn't it? There is one likened to the Son of God dancing around in those flames. With Daniel. Ah. Okay. Second commandment. Now you get the pattern of the relationship between the moral and the eschatological. So the second commandment is no graven images, no idols, morally binding upon us. Why? Terry? Same reason, no other God, no other in heaven. In heaven, there are no gods. There are no. There are no idols. You're not going to have any statues of the Virgin Mary in heaven to bow down before, are you? You're not going to have any bloody crucifixes hanging up on the walls in heaven, are you? You're not even going to have this. I'm not criticizing it, but you're not going to have it. Not going to be there. You're going to have the fullness of the glory of its finish, its completion. 
All right, so why do you have no other idols before your face now? Because you will have no idols before your face in heaven. God has no idols before his face in glory. That glory is reflecting itself on how you act, your moral behavior, the imperatives that bind you to the heavenly glory of God. You see, the Ten Commandments are not a legalistic meter. The Ten Commandments are an invitation for you to come to heaven on a reflection of the glory of the kingdom of God, the eternal kingdom of God. Which is exactly what Jesus says in the Sermon on the Mount when he says, For of such is the kingdom of heaven. He's not talking about of such is the kingdom of Israel, or of such is the kingdom of Jerusalem, or of such is the kingdom of this world. He's saying, this is the state of the kingdom of heaven. I want you to live as those who are out of the kingdom of heaven. Oh, I never thought about that. Well, the privilege is now to think about it and to understand the great riches that are there in the Ten Commandments, the law of God. Third commandment, do not take God's name in vain, morally binding upon us to uh, describe or condition the speech of our mouth with respect to the name of God and all the things that God has created. This horribly vulgar, profane, and obscene age where you cannot get away from it even in television commercials. And how they abuse the things God has made as well as God's own sacred name. What does Paul say? Avoid all filthiness of speech. That's what Paul says. Why? Because you're talking about the things God has created. Don't vulgarize them. Don't reduce them to crude vulgarities and obscenities. Don't do that. That's not the way he made you. So, once again, because God's own moral nature is to uphold the honor of his name, and the honor of what he has created, you, in all of your physical parts, are going to be glorified at the resurrection. He is going to glorify every part of your anatomy and sanctify it personally. Then how do you drag it through the gutter with the way you talk about it? That is absolutely obscene, profane, and contrary to the dignity of what God has created you with. And so your language, you see, begins to reflect the character of the glory of heaven. And you talk about all things that God has made, including your anatomy, in ways that glorify him. Now, we'll skip over the fourth commandment for the time being. We'll come back to it. But let's look at the issue of authority. Honor your father and mother, which is the category of all authority figures. We are bound to uh, obey those who are in authority over us, unless they command us to do something that God has forbidden, as Daniel does, as Peter, James, and John do. In other words, the principle of civil disobedience is in the Bible. We must obey God rather than men. So there are limitations to this authority principle. 
right. Why are we commanded to submit or to bow to those who are in authority over us? Because in heaven, the eschatological authority will be over us and we will bow to him. So our moral imperative of obeying those whom God has set over us is a reflection of us honoring God himself. Obey the magistrate, for God has put him over you as a force to spread fear into the heart of those that do evil. The magistrate stands in God's place where he does that which is just and right. There's a flip side of that in Romans 13, and that is the side in which if that magistrate becomes a force for evil, then what do you do? You resist him. You resist him. Or you don't have an American Revolution, or you don't have an English Civil War in 1642, or you don't have French Calvinist Huguenots reacting in self-defense after St. Bartholomew's Day Massacre in 1572. The whole tradition of just resistance to tyrants. Just resistance to tyrants. All right. For God resists them. There are no tyrants in God's heaven. No Adolf Hitler. No Joseph Stalin. No Mao Zedong. No tyrants in heaven, unless they repented. But I doubt that of any of the three of those I just listed. All right, now, thou shalt not kill. The moral imperative of life, the opposite of thou shalt not kill, is thou shalt preserve life. So the the moral imperative here is to reflect God who is life and is the preserver of all life. And that's the reason we stand with those who want to save life, extend life, and, uh, and, and protect it. Thou shalt not kill. Thou shalt not do murder. The adultery commandment. The moral imperative is sexual purity. This is broader than just adultery. Obviously, it includes sexual promiscuity before marriage. It includes adultery outside of marriage. It includes homosexuality. It includes bestiality. It includes all the perversions of the sexual relationship. That's all here. The call here is to sexual purity. Because in the kingdom of heaven... There is pure sexual chastity. They neither marry nor are given in marriage. They are perfectly sexually completed. Completed perfectly forever. Hard for us to imagine that, particularly some of us who are married. But nonetheless, that is the testimony of Scripture. So we think about that. And then in our moral imperatives, we say to those who are in bondage to pornography and shackled by the perversion of homosexuality, we say to them, live now in the light of the not yet. We call you to live now in the light 
of heaven. There is no homosexuality in heaven. There is no pornography in heaven. There is no bondage to sexual depravity in heaven. It is not there. Then how can you be shackled? How can you be tempted? How can you be enslaved by it here if you claim the name of Christ? I remember saying that to a young man many years ago who had been in the church all his life and had been to one counselor after another trying to break his addiction to pornography. And in two minutes, with tears in his eyes, he said, why didn't anybody ever tell me that? Namely, to live before the TV screen, before the magazines, before the movie screen, to live before my wife as if I were living in heaven. Pornography's done. It's gone. Chains are broken. Why didn't anybody ever tell me to live that way? They're all trying to give me a 10-step program to break the temptation of pornography. And I'm not minimizing some of the suggestions that may come there. Well, you're going to stay away from circles and places like that. You know what channels not to turn on, or you block them out of your TV uh, 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 remote. But my point is, in living that way, you see the most effective, uh, <coughs> effective power to break that hold. If that person who is a sincere believer will think about what he's doing or she is doing, female pornography and bondage to pornography, just as bad as male. It's just not as widespread. But to, 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 to understand that now I live out of heaven's glory. How can I look at this smut? How can I do this? Let alone, how can I deprive my wife or how can I drive my wife up the wall because I'm shackled to a magazine or a TV screen. I know a Christian divorce that ended that way because the man was addicted to pornography. Tragic, tragic situation. But if you look at it, you see, in the light of glory, then that whole temptation tends to uh, fade away, as by the grace of God, uh, we pray it does. Thou shalt not steal. Living now with respect to private property or to personal property in the light of God's own nature. He gave this commandment because he defends and protects private property by his divine mandate. You have no right to seize it or to take it if it doesn't belong to you. You don't have any right to go off to those casinos, those Indian traps, and throw your money away. And if you throw your money away and hit the jackpot, you're taking money from other people that you never earned. You don't have your right to do that. And don't talk to me about the same, the stock market is the same thing. It is not. It is not. You are earning your return because you are investing in a commodity that produces a better standard of living for people. At least that's your hope. You're not throwing your money away. What right do you have to take the stewardship that God gave to you and stick it in a slot machine or put it down on a roulette table or go off to Vegas for a weekend and have fun at the slots or at the tables? What right do you have to do that? God gave you that money to steward for his glory, not for you to squander. Gambling is theft. 
You're stealing from God. I like the old CRC warning at the Lord's table. No gamblers. Explicit. How many people in the Dutch churches had come back from Vegas when they come down? Yeah, well, anyway. And that's another place to stay away from for many reasons, pornography and gambling. All right. Thou shalt not lie. Why? Because God is truth. You live now in the light of God's character. He is perfect truth eternally. Heaven is a place of eternal truthfulness. You aren't going to have any liars in heaven. They may be repentant and converted liars, but they're not going to be telling any lies in that dimension. Thou shalt not covet. Thou shalt not be greedy. As Paul says in Romans 7, this is the most important commandment of all because it touches on all the previous nine. It is the commandment that caused him to realize that even though he was a Pharisee of the Pharisees, with respect to the law, blameless, Philippians 3, he hadn't committed adultery, he hadn't murdered anybody, he hadn't stolen anybody's goods. Well, he had consented to the murder of Christians, that is true. But nonetheless, he thought he was doing it in the cause of God. But when coveting came into him, he realized it wasn't the fact that he had withheld his external behavior from these actions. It was because he was in his heart greedy and covetous and desirous of his own glory and promoting his own lusts. It was the Tenth Commandment that came in and broke him down. Because the Tenth Commandment revealed the spiritual character of the law. That the law refers to the desire of the heart. So in the first commandment is the desire of your heart to worship God alone. The second commandment, the desire of your heart not to have any images and statues in your worship of God. The desire of your heart in the third commandment not to take God's name in vain. Or do you utter your breath, utter your, under your breath you mutter. Or in your heart, I wish he were dead. I wish she were dead. Jesus says, Jesus says to you, you are in danger of hellfire for that. You never pulled the trigger. You never threw the dagger. But in your heart, you murdered them. All right, well, we're all aware of our failure on this part, but here's the point. The commandment is a reflection of that eschatological character of God. So we come back to the fourth commandment, which we skipped. And we skipped it on purpose because we want to leave it to climax this discussion of the Sabbath that remains from Hebrews 4.9. The Sabbath that remains in every era of the history of redemption. There is always this remaining Sabbath in front of the people of God. It doesn't make any difference whether they're Old Testament people or New Testament people. There is a Sabbath that remains and it reflects its character in the invitation of God for you to spend a Sabbath in time and space and for you to look forward to a Sabbath in a timeless space. In other words, we're going to use the same pattern with the fourth commandment that we used with the others. The moral imperative, remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy, is a reflection of the fact that heaven is an eternal Sabbath where you will have an everlasting Sabbath day. You live now on the Lord's Day Sabbath in the light of your heavenly and everlasting Sabbath. You have an eschatological or semi-eschatological relationship to the Sabbath day. You keep it now in one day out of seven, and you will keep it 
not yet in a perfect, endless Sabbath day. The ethical paradigm, then, is the paradigm for those in covenant union with God and Christ throughout the whole history of redemption, from creation to exodus to wilderness generation to settlement of Canaan to the kingdom under David to the New Testament era to heaven itself. The ethical paradigm is the paradigm for those in covenant union with God in Christ. They keep Sabbath because a Sabbath remains for them. They sabotage because a sabotizing remains for them. Their sabotizing on the Lord's Day Sabbath is a reflection of their anticipation of an everlasting sabotizing in heaven forever to the glory of God. Well, then what's the motive? We have this ethical paradigm. We have this eschatological relationship. We have a semi-eschatological stance with respect to all Ten Commandments. We don't refer to the Fourth Commandment any differently than we refer to the Sixth or Seventh Commandment. It is the same eschatological, moral, now-not-yet paradigm. The Sabbath commandment isn't accepted or disqualified or annulled or somehow canceled and changed because it's not Jewish. Because it was given to Israel at Sinai. Because it's a Mosaic commandment. No. These are all reflections of God's character. He has a Sabbath character. This is God's moral nature to sabotage. And he's inviting you into that drama. He's privileging you by his invitation of grace to come in to that arena. And so we go back to the issue of the motivational paradigm. What's the motivational paradigm? Love me and keep my commandments. It's that simple. Love the eschatological character of God And keep, imperative, keep his moral commandments now. Love his invitation to the not yet and keep his mandates now. Love for heaven and that eternal Sabbath character of glory is to be reflected in your weekly Sabbath keeping. Your weekly sabbatizing is to reflect the heavenly sabotizing of God, which is already present to those in glory. Are you not looking forward to an eternal Sabbath rest, to a Sabbath in which you may lay all your labors down and lay upon the breast of Jesus forever and ever? Or where else will the world see it? Where else will the world see a testimony to something other than endless work, 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 
pleasure, 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 go, 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 act, act, act. Where else will the world see it unless they see it in the testimony of your life? One day in seven where you rest and you reflect the fact that you are bound not for work, 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 shop, 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 do, 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 but you are bound for an everlasting rest. The public dimension of your witness to the Christ who has saved you is your reflection of the sabotaging pattern in the way you live. You are glorifying God in setting that day apart, in resting from all your other unnecessary labors on that day, for meditating upon his grace, for blessing the communion and the fellowship of the saints with your presence, for being present at his word when it is delivered and proclaimed, and for encouraging the upbuilding of the saints and visiting the sick and the needy. It is also for parents the chief day of teaching your children. God has given you a day as a parent when you can catechize your children one-on-one or face-to-face. And although you may benefit from the Christian education program of the church, the Christian education program of the church is not going to answer to God when you took that vow to raise that child in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. You're going to answer for that vow. Did you train that child? You didn't pass them off to some Christian school or some Sunday school, but you catechized them. You taught them. You read the scripture. You prayed. You talked to them about their soul. You taught them the basic truths of the Christian faith. You taught them Calvinism from their mother's knee. Now, of course, it's Calvinism that you're going to teach them because you're a Presbyterian, right? Well, This is a glorious day for you to set apart for the sake of your children, if you're a parent, and to teach them the wonderful truths of Christ. What greater delight could you have than to have your son or your daughter on your knee talking to them from two, half, three years of age about who Jesus is and what he's done? What greater delight for a parent to have? Oh, that's not my response. That's the church's job. No, it's not. It's a privilege that the church can enhance and supplement and complement, but it's not a privilege that is taken from you. The privilege is yours to speak to your children heart to heart about who Jesus is, what he's done, and why this Sabbath day has been set apart for them to be taught, talked to prayed with, read to. We had this line of the drama of the history of redemption. And the Sabbath overlapping that line as a canopy over it throughout the whole history of God's plan of salvation. That drama, that line, is the drama into which God invites you on the Sabbath day. 
He draws you to identify with the Sabbath of creation, with the Sabbath at Sinai, with the Sabbath in the promised land, with the Sabbath under the kingdom of the monarchy of David to the Sabbath under the New Testament. God invites you into his everlasting rest one day out of every week. He invites you into his Sabbath rest. Will you live? Will you live before him on that day by remembering the Sabbath day to keep it holy? Or will you turn it into another play day, recreation day, please myself day, directly contrary to what Isaiah tells you in chapter 58? If you do not do your pleasure on this day, But call the Sabbath a delight. God will cause you to ride upon the high places of the earth. And as Jonathan Edwards pointed out many years ago, that is an eschatological projection of the Sabbath of the people of God, the Hebrews of the end of the age. That is a Sabbath for the sojourners who are looking for the sabbatizing that remains. Any questions or comments that you may have? In other words, I hope you understand that I've made a case for the fact that Hebrews 4.9 is telling you that the fourth commandment is not an option to you. It is required. It has not been left out of the Decalogue, renewed and repeated by the New Testament scriptures. It is there explicitly. Because the Sabbath has been there since the beginning of the world, explicitly. As it is explicitly before God's face, now in glory. Well, I wish you God's blessing in your sabbatizing, as well as your Thanksgiving celebration. Wherever you may spend it, and with whomever you may spend it, There will be no uh, meeting of this body next week on Thursday. I trust that you will all be enjoying the blessings of that holiday. Uh, Scott, you had a question or comment? Since you're interpreting verse 9, some people obviously interpret verse 9 to mean there remains yet in the future the Sabbath rest, and so they get rid of that. Uh, So then they naturally see verse 10 as purely future eschatological as well. Since you're interpreting 9 to be semi-eschatological as well as eschatological, would you say the same thing in verse 10? I would, and I think the one who has entered his rest is Christ. It's going back to verse 8, where now he's playing on the name Jesus, and consequently, in verse 10, Christ has entered his rest. He has also he has rested from his works as God did from his, and Christ is once again the pioneer and perfecter of that Sabbath paradigm. As Joshua could not, or did not. Okay? This is in my head, I don't know quite how to say it, but are we closer to the Sabbath rest than they were in the Old Testament? Because Jesus is there with our body? Yes, you are, because you're joined to him in that relationship. Exactly. He is the Lord of the Sabbath because he places it at the beginning of the week, not at the end of the week. We're not looking forward to it as if it hasn't been accomplished. We're looking, we begin our week in the accomplishment of it, of it in Christ's resurrection. 
So our Sabbath is the resurrection Sabbath day. It is not the Saturday of the end of the week. But we still have the one in seven principle in the commandment. Commandment does not command the Saturday Sabbath. It commands a one in seven pattern. Stephen? Uh, yes, if, if nine and ten are both uh, now and nine. They're semi-eschatological, correct. Eleven would be as well. Yes, correct. yes. And that, that's how I've, I've always taken it. Uh, it seems that not everyone does. No, they don't, because they have an axe to grind. <laughs> They want the Sabbath to only be one hour a week. That is, when you're in uh, church on Sunday, everything else is free. No, that's not what's going on here. Go ahead, Stephen. This may be, this may be a little bit, I don't know, slightly off topic, but um, I found it interesting that you, you, you pointed out the fact that the, that the church's uh, Sabbath-keeping uh, and worship of God uh, functions as a testimony to the nations, to, to uh, the unbelieving world uh, as a testimony of the rest that is to come. Uh, if if the, the writer of the Hebrews is writing to a church that's under some duress, uh, pressures, maybe a persecution, uh, this the question comes to mind uh, is there a, a place and a time when the church is allowed to suspend that testimony uh, of, of the public worship of, of God and of the Sabbath keeping I don't think and I think that's what he objects to in verse 25 of chapter 10 where he says some of you are forsaking they're not forsaking they're not supposed to they're to sabotage in that uh, gathering of themselves for worship. And because they weren't, you see, they were uh, <coughs> implicitly repudiating God's Sabbath rest, his everlasting rest. So this community was working through persecution or tension, even some people being arrested, by continuing on with their practice of gathering for weekly worship and remembering the Lord's Day Sabbath, in my opinion. I know I ask that question. I'm in an easy spot. I'm not under those pressures, um, so perhaps it's easy to ask that question. But if that's a case, that Hebrews does seem to have uh, implications for, for churches under persecution in, in terms of either their yes. worship, continuing to, 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 to worship, because that's what the Lord calls you to do. It may be hard, it may result in, in, in death, but the Lord doesn't call, it's still calling the church to his church to that. I won't object to them going underground, okay? That I won't object to. You don't have to make yourself a target. But nonetheless, you continue to actively gather for worship in some way. This, of course, is true in many of the Reformation communities. Before Catholicism was abolished in some of the Reformation cities, they would meet secretly, and they would move that worship service from week to week or from time to time so that the Roman Catholic authorities could not uncover them and uh, arrest them and persecute them. So I'm not averse to this uh, clandestine kind of worship. You don't have to be you know, out there with banners, but nonetheless, the worship continues to go on. This is Calvin's objection to what he calls the Nicodemism, the Nicodemism of that era, where people would pretend to be Catholics 
though they were uh, 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 claiming to be Protestants, though they could still go to Mass, etc. David? The Exodus generation never entered into God's rest. While they were wandering around in the wilderness, did they also, I believe I read that they um, neglected or abandoned all the uh, other aspects of the law, they also probably did not keep us out. They, they didn't keep it perfectly, but uh, they were in some ways compelled to keep it, at least for the purpose of gathering up their food. Because in Exodus 16, God indicates that he's going to give them a double portion of manna on the day before the Sabbath, which is how they knew that the seventh day of the week was to be the particular one in seven that God specified under the Mosaic economy. And consequently, all through the wilderness, he gave them twice as much manna on the day before their Sabbath. And so they kept the Sabbath insofar as they didn't go out to gather any manna. Now, there are some that did break that, and they, they were punished for it. But nonetheless, the fact that there were no further incidents of that or no further routine incidents of that indicate that they did conform to it out of necessity uh, for not only saving their lives from judgment, but also getting their getting the manna that uh, that's, that lasted two days. Okay. See you in two weeks. There are only two weeks to go. We're not going to finish Hebrews in two weeks.